so we're, we're looking at the series, uh, specifically focusing in on what Paul has written for us in the book of Galatians, uh, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, and so, uh, but what I want to do first, I want to give you kind of a, I want to present to you two different models. We're looking at, we're looking at the question, uh, who are you becoming, right? Who are you becoming? We said it's a super important question. And um, I've got two kind of trees up here, okay? Little, little Christmas tree that my daughter had in her room, and she had it, uh, little, um, ornaments on it and that sort of thing, and it was in her closet here now. And then this is my other daughter's uh, live orchid that she has. There's not a flower on there right now. I think it's just because of the season, but there's usually a really pretty, pretty colored flower on this. Now, I would suggest that there are two different models of spiritual growth that you've probably encountered, you've maybe slipped into, maybe they were taught to you, and one's kind of like the Christmas tree. Um, it's not alive. There's no life to it, uh, but, but the way that you make it look nice is you adorn it with pretty stuff on the outside, right? You can hang things on there. You can make it look like there's life, right? But it's, I mean, it's plastic. There's nothing to it. Uh, this one's artificial. This one is, is actually alive. You just give it some water occasionally, and it's, it's, it grows, in a, and it grows these really beautiful uh, kind of pink-colored leaves on them or whatever they are. And it's a, it's a very different concept. They're both attractive. <laughs> one's dead and one's alive. Um, again, one has this sort of inwardly produced beauty that, that comes out without having to try to manufacture, manipulate the outside of the plant. And I think there's a lot of times that as we go to, whether it be the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings there, whether we go to uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, we can read those like this. Meaning we read them as this, like, this is kind of how you read it. Hey, all you Christmas trees, you're not very loving. Try to be a little more loving. Hey, all you Christmas trees, you're not that joyful. Can you try to be a little bit more joyful? Like, would you, would you work on that? You know what I mean by that? And I don't know about you, but that's, you know, that's what um, Dallas Willard always called a gospel of sin management. <laughs> Isn't that great? A gospel of sin management, meaning if I can just manage the outside of it, if I can kind of try to hold the sin off as much as possible, that's a beautiful gospel message. And he goes, no, it's not. That's a horrible message at all. The gospel message is not about managing all these things that are dead and broken and wounds and all this sort of thing. The gospel is actually that God wants to infuse, if you remember a couple weeks ago we, used, we talked about tea and how tea infusing happens. He wants to actually infuse life into the center, into the core. And then it actually becomes something real, something alive. So there's actual life there, but it's foreign life. It's not the idea that I'm just working harder. <laughs> I'm trying a little bit more. It doesn't mean that I don't have a part in this. Week one, we talked about the relationship between the Holy Spirit's activity in my life and, and the, the role that I play in that. So it's not this complete passivity, but it's, it's, no, it's not resourced from me. 
It's something foreign or outside of myself. Because what I need is to use the picture that, that Jesus talked about. You remember he said, you can have streams of living water, he said, flowing out from your belly. I think is how the King James translates it. Flowing, living water. Now think about a desert dweller. A desert dweller who, who sees living water, like water coming out. Oh, that's the only chance for life. And he says, think of that picture. You're like a dead desert, but yet a stream of water, this brook, can like actually come out of you. And that's what we're going for here. So as we're looking at this, we're saying that's the model we're going for. And so um, let's read Galatians 5, 22 through 25. This is the picture of what that life would look like. It'll be up on the screen there. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's love and peace and patience. It's kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. It's gentleness, self-control, Oh, did, did I miss one? I missed tonight's. Okay, that's, that's a bad <laughs> sign, just so you know. That, that's a bad sign for a sermon right there. He says, uh, and those, uh, against those things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh. And remember, we talked about what that is. It doesn't mean just our physical bodies, but it means everything that's sort of in rebellion, just sort of my way, or the highway, um, we have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, that's, that, that's this model right here. <laughs> if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So we're going for the live tree, not the Christmas tree, model in this series as we're saying, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to look more like that in my reactions and my responses and my attitudes and my thoughts and even my, my feelings. And so week one, as I said, we, we, we looked at the way in which the Holy Spirit ministers or works with us, how he continues the work of Jesus. That's what the book of Acts says. He, he, he's continuing the work of Jesus, but internally now in our lives. We also looked at this idea that it's not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of, it's one fruit. Uh, God is holistically wanting to work all of these things in my life. So maybe we could say it's one fruit with nine flavors. I don't know. But it's, it's one activity of the Spirit. And all of these things are involved in it. And then week two, we, we started to look at the, how Paul gives us these nine in three different triads, three groups of three. And, and, and the first triad is love, joy, and peace. And we've said these are sort of habits of the mind, like, like default habits. And then we're going to be looking at patience, kindness, and goodness. And we said these are these um, special qualities that affect interpersonal relationships, like how we do community. And then finally, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which speaks to just general Christian conduct, how self-controlled of a life, how faithful of a life do, do I have? And then we, we started last week looking at the first one, love. And we saw that love comes first, um, one, because it's the greatest of them all. Paul says that many, many times. Love is the, it, it's, it's the greatest of all of these. And the reason why is because it contains all the others. Um, all these others flow out of love. And so that's, that's absolutely central and key. And so tonight we're going to look at joy. 
Um, Paul speaks about joy an enormous amount, and, and usually um, uh, joy and peace are like uh, brothers and sisters, like they're all very, very often connected. I think joy and peace through Paul's letters, he, he uses those two as a couplet, like, I don't know, 40 sometimes or something like that. He uses joy alone in his letters like 21 times, and he doesn't make it like a, um, oh, it's nice if you have kind of thing. I was really surprised this week as I was reading through some of Paul's letters how absolutely central he made joy to the Christian life. Um, he made it absolutely central. He, he said things like this, um, joy and peace, these two together, are a key sign of the kingdom of God. And he said, and joy is just as important as righteousness. I'd never seen that before. He said it's just as important as righteousness. This comes from the book of Romans. Um, and he said these things happen in your life when, when, God, when you allow God to rule you. Um, he said things like joy and peace are the way we are to serve and please God. Not, not in sort of a sad anxiety, but in this joy and peace together. Um, he said joy and peace are essential ingredients in our hope. Like if you want to have a hope, like live out of this deep hope, you, you have to have peace and joy. And they're what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. Joy and peace, he says, are evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit's overflowing work in your own life. Uh, Jesus said this in John 15, 11. Jesus said to his followers, these things I have spoken to you, listen to this, that my joy, Jesus said, may be in you, do you get the foreign thing? It's, it's not mine. And that your joy may be like filled to capacity. Complete is the idea. Fully installed there. Paul says this in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. There, you see them coupled together there. In believing, meaning that comes as a result of believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound and here's that word again hope you may abound in hope we live in a culture which oftentimes feels hopeless we we in our own lives even followers of jesus sometimes experience that sense of man this feels hopeless and there's some connection there to joy and peace in my life so let's do this for a second We've, one thing we've tried to do is always you know, define terms. Always good to define terms. One of the things that, that I struggle with as I think about jo joy, just like in my head, joy and happiness, do you know what I mean? Like when you think about joy, are you able to distinguish it from happiness? Like I think I struggle with that. I know there's a distinction. I don't fully know what it is, so I don't, I don't think I have the last word on what joy is and how it's distinguished. But, but let's just think for a little bit, and you might have some thoughts maybe of your, you know, your better ones. We were talking in the, uh, in the other room, the band afterwards, and, uh, or before, and we were just throwing around ideas about yeah, how do I think about joy being different from happiness? And what, one of the differences, maybe if we just look at happiness, we'll start to see joy emerge and get some distance between the two. Think about the word happiness itself. The word happiness comes from the, the root, it has a Latin root, hap, which just means chance, right? Which makes sense. We have, we have uh, phrases or words like happenstance, right? It, it, it refers to chance things happening, happening to me, and then I'm happy, right? 
Have you experienced that before? Something, some chance thing happens, and then I am happy because of that. And so when we think of the pursuit of happiness, we typically think of exterior things, things on the outside of the Christmas tree, right? Um, occupational success, uh, physical health, uh, the accumulation of you know, material goods. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But my happiness, I see it's somehow attached to these chance things that are very exterior that sometimes feel like they come by chance to me as opposed to joy. Happiness seems to be my spontaneous response to some sort of immediate pleasure. That makes sense. It's sort of this, um, this spontaneous response of, ooh, I'm happy, right? Because you know, something happened. Because there's some immediate external pleasure that I have, and that makes me happiness. Happiness, it's, it's based on my own subjective experience of the world, which is to say this, maybe the state that I'm in, the things that are, that are done to me externally. Christian joy, it's based not on a subjective feeling, it's based on an objective reality. And that is, who am I? My identity in Jesus, which we'll come back to here in a little bit. So happiness, it's a process that works from the outside in, and as soon as the outside's gone, the inside's done. Joy is something that works the exact opposite way. It works from the inside out. That's why, the, that, that's why James, in his letter, can say what's kind of sound like crazy words to me. In James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face many or trials of many different kinds because you know that the testing of your faith she, she somehow thought i said siri but i didn't i must have said something that sounded like siri i don't know consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith it produces perseverance and then he says and let that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, you may be complete, not lacking in anything. I think that's fascinating that he says, consider it pure joy when? When you are in some of the hardest circumstances of your life. Okay, that's not happiness, <laughs> right? Because happiness has to do with the exterior things. So whatever he's talking about here, he says it's something that can be leaned into, it can be stoked like a fire, something, that's not merely dependent on the external. It's not, it's not dependent on the things that cause happiness. So we're starting to see like a little bit of space between joy and happiness. I don't still fully know what it is, but I know it's not just, I know what happiness is. I know that real well. Joy seems to be something meta, like above it. There's maybe some parallels, but it's something bigger. It's something deeper, something broader. Dallas Willard used, used this definition, which I like. Um, he says, uh, joy is a, pers a, a, uh, a pervasive sense of well-being. And he's not referring to the kind of well-being, just the external stuff. 
but given difficulties, there's still a pervasive sense of well-being because I know who I am. I know God. There are certain things that are known (laughs) about God and about me that allows me to have a pervasive sense of well-being despite whatever circumstance might I might find myself in like James talks about here. Um, let, me take a, let me just pause for a second and offer you something that, that, I, found help, that I found helpful before. Um, there, there is a, a licensed psychologist, he's a, a professor as well, C. Gary Barnes, and um, he explores myths about depression. And I bring up depression because depression is oftentimes the experience that when, when we have it, we lack joy, right? Not just happiness, not just that. Depression is something deeper. We, we, we struggle to have that deeper, bigger, whatever it might be, sense of joy in our lives. Um, it was interesting, the survey came from a number of, uh, they surveyed pastors and church leaders about what, what are the top, I think it was 10 things that people in your community seek pastoral counseling for. And depression was number three. It was the number third top reason why people seek pastoral counseling for dealing with, I, I've lost joy in my life. And um, one th- now, we are to, I'll just ask, are we to encourage one another to rejoice? Yes, absolutely, right? I'm to encourage myself, speak to myself. You know, David talked about, oh, my soul, why are you downcast? He, he did self-talk, right? We have to distinguish someone who is going through difficulties and trials in life, like kind of what James is talking about, distinguish that from someone who actually is experiencing clinical depression. Because to tell that person, well, just rejoice. <laughs> Don't you think they would if they could? People who are experiencing that level of difficulty don't have the ability too. And so we need to be very sensitive and careful to that. And so I thought these, he, he gives eight common myths about Christians who are struggling with this loss of joy into sort of more of a sense of deeper depression, which I thought was interesting. I'll just read them to you. Myth number one, depression always results from sin or lack of faith. Now, the Bible does say the one who, who, who is living in rebellion against God, a follower of Jesus, who, who is actively in conscious sinful behavior, that will lead to things like guilt, right? That could lead to feelings of a loss of joy. But the question becomes, is a loss of joy or, or depression always the result of secret sin or lack of faith? No, of course not. That's, that's much too... Um, simplistic of a view. Struggling with a lack of joy and depression, it's a complex package. There are biological reasons and uh, psychological reasons, medical reasons. Number two myth is depression is caused by personal weakness. People who themselves have not had depression, what they do is they sort of think like, well, I don't have the problem of depression. Um, and so, you know, it, it must just be because the person's weak. Or if you would just do what I do, you wouldn't struggle with depression because, um, again, it must be some idea of weakness. And, of course, that's simply false. Whatever attribute that you think it is, oh, if you pray a lot or if you're this or if you're that, there are pl- there, there's plenty of research to show that people with those qualities, whatever it might be, are still susceptible to depression. 
Third myth, a true Christian should never truly be depressed. Um, this, this one sort of leans on Christian formulas, believing that there are certain things that you can just do, Christian activities, that just prevent any sort of depression in this way. So it kind of goes back to number one. But even if you're really journeying well in your spiritual journey, that is not a promise. That is not a promise that there will be a prevention uh, to avoid all experiences of depression or loss of joy. In fact, um, I, I came across um, Larry Crabb. I don't know if you, if you know who he is. He's a, a therapist. and he was, he was asked this question in a, in a setting, and someone was relaying this story where uh, he was asked this very question. Isn't it, isn't it true that you know, if uh, a, a Christian shouldn't really ever experience depression? This was his response. He says, not only is it true that a true Christian can truly be depressed, but there's a lot of Christians who aren't depressed that ought to be depressed. <laughs> and I, and you know, my first brother was like, what's he talking about? This guy's like a sadist or something here. His, his whole point was this, that there, there are a lot of Christians leaning on false props. There are a lot of Christians who to avoid the hollowness in their life, to avoid some of the brokenness that if they were honest about they would be depressed, they just go shopping a lot or they engage in a lot of sports activities, or they fill in the blank, right? They have idols, is the idea. That, that was his point. He said, if those idols just got kicked out from underneath them, they would be depressed, because they would have reason to be depressed because of some of the brokenness in their life, was his point. Uh, myth number four, uh, depression, depression should be cured by spiritual resources alone. And of course, very similar myth. Uh, but again, it's tapping into that formula thing there again. If I just work the Christian formula, I'm always going to get the right outcome um, in, my, in my life. But again, there are so many other factors involved with people who are struggling with depression that come into the picture. S is our spiritual practices a component? Yes, but it's much more common. There are many other components as well. Myth number five, using medication means I'm not relying on God. Nuanced myth, right? Is it possible someone could not be relying on God and be relying on medication alone? Of course. <laughs> Does it mean that if someone is using medication, they're by virtue of that not relying on God? Of course not. That, that doesn't follow from that in any way. Um, you could actually be a very good steward before God, if you're using medication in a healthy way, you could actually be relying on a very significant discovery that God has provided for you, that he has shown you in that way. Myth number six, medications will make my problems better. It's the idea of medications alone will make my problems better. And of course, again, we need to give a nuanced uh, understanding of that. Medication helps people come back up to a to a more steady level at times it can. Um, and then once you're at that level, now you have more full capacity to use coping mechanisms, right? When you're down so far, you can't even access those coping uh, uh, uses anymore. And so medication alone is not gonna take it away, of course. And then myth number seven was, according to this, medications alone can cure depression, similar answer, kind of the previous one, and then the last one, number eight. Medication uh, masks feelings, blocking real problems. 
And again, we can say the same thing. Is it possible that a person could be not looking at problems in their life because they're on medication? Sure, of course. <laughs> but not necessarily. It could be that using medication in an appropriate way, observed by a doctor and that sort of thing, could actually allow you to have greater insight to some of your problems. So again, I just, I just bring these up because I think it's helpful um, in my role as a pastor, I end up having a lot of conversations with people who feel like if, if I use medication for, say, a um, mental health issue or whatever it might be, um, I'm, I'm, I'm lacking faith in God. And what we have to realize is the brain, it's, it's an organ. It's a physical organ, right? If you had a problem with a different organ in your body, would you take medication for it if it was prescribed by a doctor and wise and all. Of course you would, right? There's nothing unchristian or lack of faith or anything in seeking medical help and sometimes even medication for things like this idea of I have a loss of joy in my life. <clears throat> so let me do this. I want to just give you um, a couple observations that that I've discovered that, that maybe people in my life have discovered about this idea of, I want to I pursue joy. I don't fully know what it is, <laughs> but I want to lean into it. You know what I mean by that? There are some things, some things we see in Scripture, some things that we would, probably a lot of us in the room would say, oh, I've, this is something I've discovered that's helpful as I want to pursue the joy that Jesus offers, and I want to put myself in a way that, can, that I can receive it. Number one, the discipline of celebration. The discipline of celebration. And you might think, like, I've never heard those two words used before together. <laughs> yeah, I know. But there's an ancient tradition in Scripture that celebration is actually a discipline. Think about the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament. Do you realize that they had three annual feasts that lasted, like, quite a period of time? Uh, there was Passover, that was a one-day thing, but it came with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so it was a longer period of time, many days. You have the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, and then you have the Feast of Tabernacles. If, if you want to read about these, you can find them in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. But these were opportunities for the people at different times of the year to take an extended vacation break of rest because they were not allowed to work at all, not just on the Sabbath that was in that, the whole, the whole week. You can't, you can't lift a finger at all. You can't work. And what they're told is you're going to use this time, and they, um, they were told things like this, Deuteronomy 16, 11, rejoice before Yahweh, your God, at the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Another uh, a little later in the verse, he says, be joyful at your festival. <laughs> He's encouraging them, I want you to celebrate. And what are they supposed to celebrate? He says, I want you to celebrate just my overflowing love for you. Bless practical blessings in your life. Eating, drink. He gave instructions about, here's how I want you to eat. Here's how I want you to drink. Here's how I want you to engage in the discipline of celebration. And the Old Testament is not embarrassed at all about celebrating God's good things, like really good things in our life, and, and, and then giving thanks to God. They celebrated in the scripture for things like the gift of the law, 
uh, an annual gift of the harvest. They celebrated the word of God uh, through the prophets. They celebrated the building of the temple. They celebrated when a new king took over. They celebrated all of the ordinary gifts of life, like work, love, marriage, beauty, nature, bread, wine. And I, and I think sometimes we can almost start to think or behave. I can almost become so spiritual <laughs> that I don't celebrate the normal things in my life. The only two, and I think these are kind of interesting, helpful, the only two um, not restrictions, but concerns, caveats put on these celebrations. Number one is they were told that they must be morally clean. Many of their other neighbors, when they celebrated, it just turned into you know, debauchery, and celebration just means let's go party, right? No, you know, no limits. And then number two, it's interesting, their, their celebration had to be socially inclusive. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy uh, 6, 11. It says, and rejoice before Yahweh your God, at the place that he will be, you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants. The servants couldn't work all week long either. <laughs> they couldn't be preparing all the food while you're celebrating and eating. The Levites in the town and the foreigners. Levites had no land. Uh, foreigners had no land. So all that harvest, guess, guess who you're going to share it with? <laughs> the ones who don't have it. The widows and the orphans, the fatherless living among you. So it's to be this inclusive celebration. Remember when Jesus said something about, he said, don't have a party, invite all your friends and the rich people who can just pay you back. Remember that? He said, invite in the poor, invite in the crippled. Oh, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. Celebration involves this inclusivity of those who are isolated, and that's part of the celebration. You ever found that when you get outside of yourself and you start serving others, what do you forget about pretty quickly? The gift of self-forgetfulness. It's a beautiful thing. Seriously, if you're at a place where, where you find yourself down on, oh, just you're kind of thinking about, again, this is just a try thing. Try serving someone with no strings attached. There's something they knew about that. There's something God knows about doing that. You get the gift of self-forgetfulness, which is a wonderful thing. So here's, my here's one of my questions for you. Maybe you can write this down. Let me just give you three kind of categories, maybe of others. What are things that bring you joy? How about relationships? What are the relationships? Think about that bucket. What names would you write on there? These are relationships. That, man, it just, just brings me joy. Uh, I was in the car today with a friend driving, and, and we just started, la we were talking about this doctor I was seeing, and, and I said, yeah, you know, I've been seeing this doctor for like, you know, 15 years, and he goes, that doctor's an OBGYN. I said, oh, he's not, and we just started, I mean, we laughed for like, uh, like, I almost had to pull over the car. They, you know, he's thinking like, you know, Brent's been seeing like a woman doctor here for, you know, 20 years, and I'm like, that's probably why I get such bad care, I don't know. Um, but like, that's one of those relationships, and I'm like, man, we, we laugh. I mean, just crying, laughing. It's a relationship of just joy. What are, um, what are the celebrations, like the pieces of news? You know, like when you get a piece of news, that man, when you get that, you just, you and think back in your life. What are the times when you've gotten that, that the diagnosis that, that allowed celebration? Or the concern about what was gonna happen here, and you heard, and you're, oh, so. Think back about those. Write some of those down. Um, what, what, are, what are the things about creation? 
Is it, is it swimming? Like, what is it that when you do, you just, man, that brings me so much joy. I remember someone saying, and, and I've, I've tried to do this, if, if, if you're gonna engage in the discipline of celebration, go pick your favorite restaurant. Order, order the food there, eat in moderation. But as you sit there, the whole time, just say, God, thank you. I, I love, love this fried chicken, whatever it might be. <laughs> I love this food. I love these vegetables. And, 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 and like realize, think about that you're enjoying them. Whew. How about a piece of music? Is there a certain kind of music that truly puts you in the place of, man, it just gives me joy. Sit and listen to it and just thank God while it's going. Thank you for this. Thank you for this music. Thank you for this song. It's so enjoyable. It's leaning into the discipline of celebration because that's what it is. We're not very good at it. <laughs> and if I, if I think about it as a spiritual discipline, it takes on a totally different tone. One, I live in gratitude because I realize this comes from the hand of God. I don't know about you, but when I'm, when I'm grateful, my victim mentality kind of goes out the door. <laughs> when I'm serving others, my self-obsession kind of dissolves for a little bit. Number two, second thing, um, and this is, this is more of a warning of how, you're, how you can go wrong, how, how your joy can be sapped from you. And that is one way that, that I lose my joy is when I confuse my identity with my calling. What's my calling? Well, my calling is to be a father. My calling is to be a pastor. It's to be a husband. It's to be a fill in the blank. You have a lot of callings in life, right? The minute you start confusing your identity with your calling, and you start to think, you know those gifts that you have that allow you to do that calling well? The minute you start confusing your identity with those gifts that allow you to do that well, you will absolutely lose that. Yeah, are, are you a realtor? Uh, are you an interior designer? Um, are you an entrepreneur? Are you a teacher? I don't, I don't know. Whatever you are, do not allow that to get in the camp of your identity. Because if it is, you'll, you'll be bothered by people who are better at it than you are. <laughs> you'll always be thinking, oh, there's always someone who's a better, they're a better mother. And you're on Facebook and you're looking and you find yourself just going, oh, I wish I were a better mother because look at what they do with their kids, right? And, and you, start to, you start to confuse, that's my identity as a person. That's my value. And you will lose joy, I guarantee you, the minute you make that confusion. Um, Donald Miller, he's an author. He wrote uh, Blue Like Jazz. He wrote another book called uh, Searching for God Knows What. And in, in that book, he tells the story about when he was young growing up in school. And uh, Miller says that he was kind of on the fringe of his social setting. And if you know what it's like, people who are on the fringe of, of a social setting, a lot of anxiety comes with that, uh, not a whole lot of sense of joy. And uh, he said, he remembered one, one day he was reading and he, he came across a poem and he liked it and so he put it to memory. And he, he said a few weeks had passed and he was with some of this social group and, and uh, someone said something and he said, oh, that reminds me of a poem and he recited it. And his friend said, Miller, you are smart. You are really smart. And he said, it was the first time in my life that I ever felt good about myself. And he said, so first thing I did is I went and I memorized more poems. <laughs> but he said, second observation is he realized, he said, I need to look outside myself to get a sense of myself. Like that's what I, but 
all the people I'm looking to to get in a, a sense of who I am are just as insecure as I am. <laughs> They're just as insecure, and yet I'm looking to them to get my self-identity <coughs> in my own life. I'm convinced that every single one of us define ourselves, I do, I think you do too, based on how you think other people perceive you. But again, as, as Miller pointed out, every one of us looks to people to get a sense of self, but they have that exact same need. So what do we need? I need to find someone who is absolutely stable, who doesn't have that need. Who does that sound like? My identity has to be rooted in God, is the idea, who has no need for his identity to be shaped by what I perceive him to be or how I think about him. Colossians 3.3, 3, Paul puts that very concept in these words. Colossians 3.3-4, 3, 3 through 4, he says, For you, this is a follower of Jesus, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a, that's a double thing. <laughs> Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's saying that's your identity. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And what this is telling us is that the only way to live this kind of life where you have a stable self is if it's root, deeply rooted in Jesus, who is in God. Number three is to prepare yourself ahead of time for the moments that will come. If, if you're at a place right now where you'd say, I'm, I'm not at that deeper, dark place, kind of below, you know, par, that sort of thing, good, love hearing that, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> prepare yourself for it. You might think, well, that's kind of, you know, negative thinking. No, not really. Um, Jesus said things like this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right before this passage is where he said, hey, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be killed, it's gonna, it's gonna be really hard. Peter, you're gonna be sifted like wheat, this is gonna happen to you, it's gonna be dark times. But he said, but I've told you this, I have told you this so that you'll have my peace, so that you'll have it. Because if you know it's coming, you won't be caught off guard. And so I would say to every single one of us, know the dark night of the soul will come for you someday. It, it will happen. Many of you have been there before. Some of you may be there now. And Jesus tells us ahead of time, here's why I think Jesus tells us ahead of time that we're gonna have trouble and heartache and difficulty. Because when it does happen, he doesn't want you to think that he's abandoned you. That's why, he, that's why Jesus tells his followers this here and now. And so he's saying, you need to prepare yourself ahead of time. Um, one of my uh, favorite books is The Screwtape Letters. I think I've probably referenced it in here before. C.S. Lewis wrote this fictional dialogue. Um, he, he's kind of thinking into this evil spiritual world and saying, what must go on with the evil forces that tempt us and lure us and all that? And so it's this, fic this fictitious letter writing back and forth from an elder demon, an older, more mature demon, to a younger demon, giving him advice about how to trip up his patient, which is the, this young Christian. And one thing he says is, 
he says, um, get, get your patient to believe that life should always be even keeled. And if it's not, something's wrong. <laughs> C.S. Lewis talked, he talked about this idea of the law of undulation, which is to say like a wave, like up and down. The law of undulation, he would say, all of us, here's how we experience life and how we experience faith, is we have, we have our peak moments, right? Where we feel encouraged, we feel like we're soaring, like, like we could fly, we could conquer the world, right? And then he said, and then we have our trough moments, where it feels like we're walking through quicksand, right? And every single one of us, we have these ups and these downs, these uh, different moments. And he says, here's, here's what you get your patient to do. Get your patient to assess all of life by where they're at, either on the peak or the trough. <laughs> if it's the peak, oh, I'm happy, because external things. If it's a trough, I'm in absolute despair. And so assess your life based on where you're at, and then you'll have no joy, or you'll be so up and down. And eventually, you'll go, man, this is, I'm discouraged, and you'll vector away, and you'll, and you'll walk away from your faith. That false idea will mess with your identity as in Jesus. And again, you, you might be in that time right now, and if you are, you, you need to hear certain words of Jesus. And my prayer is that this night, the Holy Spirit will, will give you the balm that you need. If you're at a place where you're going, um, you know what, I've been there, maybe the Holy Spirit will say, who around you can you reach out to? Can you be an encouragement to? Is there, is there a name that comes to mind? Maybe someone in your neighborhood, you know they've had a loss recently. Respond to the you know, prompt, maybe you bring them a meal. If you're at a place where you're not there at all, prepare yourself. Dispel the idea in your mind that, that life is this, is this flat, easygoing thing. And realize Jesus' words, you're going to have hardship, you're going to have difficulty. But I tell you these things so you don't think I've abandoned when you when you get there, because I'll be there as well, but you won't be able to see me as clearly. And so prepare your heart now. And so our reserves, what we have to do is to constantly be pushing away from despair, depression, encouraging ourselves, and we have to constantly be fighting with the power of the gospel and with the power of forgiveness in our lives. And that's what we do each evening as we take communion. It's this, it's this way of realizing, oh yeah, my strength, it has to be infused. If, if, if I'm going on my own, I'm hosed. There's, there's life of another that can be given to me that I can have that spiritual joy and encouragement in my life, despite all the stuff going on. And so during this next song, I, I, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to, to, to take the elements and let this be a time, wherever you're at, we're all at different places, but ask God to give you specifically what you need. And as you take these elements, let it be that reminder of your utter dependence on him. Amen. I just want to pray over us the prayer that we've been saying every single week. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day we may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day we may take up our cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill us with yourself 
cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen and amen.